Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. Before we start, if the sound quality is kind of iffy today, that's because we couldn't get to the studio again this week due to COVID lockdowns. COVID vaccines are being rolled out around the world, but how optimistic should we be? Is this the silver bullet we've all been waiting for? What do we really know about these vaccines that have been developed at warp speed? And what are the differences between these different formulas? My guest today is here to help us sift through all the information and the latest headlines. She's the head of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the American University of Beirut Medical Center. She's also the chair of the Infection Control and Prevention Program and a consultant professor at Duke University in North Carolina. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Soha Kanj. Dr. Kanj, welcome. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you for having me. It's great to be speaking with you again. I interviewed you for an article I wrote um, in the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know if you remember, and we didn't really know what was going on, but that was almost a year ago. And here we are again. Will this ever end? Uh, yeah, I remember very well. And as you stated, it was at a time we could not predict for how long the pandemic will go. And here we are a year later, uh, still in the midst of it. And actually, I would say in the peak of it in Lebanon. Yeah. Um, and I know that Lebanon, where you're based, is scheduled to be receiving its first shipment of uh, vaccines right about now or this week. Have you had it yet? Are you planning on having it? Uh, so Lebanon, uh, we are uh, planning to have it. Uh, the first shipment, I believe, will arrive on February 17. So you haven't had it yet. Yeah. So I, I developed COVID uh, and I have immunity. So I don't belong to the category of high priority, uh, although uh, healthcare providers are classified as the highest priority together with the Uh, citizens who are 75 years of age or older, uh, but uh, people who have acquired the COVID infection and are expected to have uh, antibodies, uh, therefore immunity to last for several months, uh, would not be considered in the first priority. So personally, I've not had it. Uh, nor my family. That's so interesting because as a infectious disease specialist working in this field and dealing with this, I would have expected that you would have been so cautious and careful. Can I ask how you got it? So I'm usually very cautious. Uh, and as you can imagine, as an infectious disease specialist, and particularly as the one in charge of the infection control and prevention program, we put the Uh, guidance for uh, staff for what to do to avoid infection. Uh, actually, I remember vividly how I got it. It was at a time when uh, we started to see a peak uh, and uh, we had put regulations that all the patients who come to clinic uh, have to be screened for uh, the presence of fever or cough before they enter the clinic. And if they satisfy a certain, uh, you know, a questionnaire that says that, yes, I do have uh, one of the manifestations that possibly could be related to COVID. They're supposed to go to the COVID clinic to get the uh, PCR test before they're seen in our clinic. 
so in that that particular scenario, and and uh, I know the patient who I acquired it from does not know the story yet, but I plan to tell it to him one day. He came to my clinic, and when I started interviewing him, he said that he had been coughing. And then I said, well, how come you're in my clinic and you have a history of cough? You should have gone to the COVID clinic to be tested. He said, no, I've not been leaving the house. We don't see anyone, just my uh, spouse and myself. We're locked down, etc." Uh, and that's why I told the nurse that my symptoms are not related to COVID. So I went in the room wearing my mask. He was wearing his mask. I examined him in the small cubicle room. And then as I was examining him, he removed his mask and coughed three times, very strong cough. Now, immediately I urged him to put the mask back. And I said, even if you don't think you have COVID, uh, you really need to put the mask back and you have to go immediately to be screened. And so therefore, um, all, all along, I suspected that COVID could be a possibility. Uh, 24 hours later, I received the news that he had COVID. And then, uh, you know, within 24 hours extra, I started to feel malaise and fatigue. And this is when I knew that I had it. Well, I'm really glad you're okay. But let's talk about the different types of vaccines that are available now on the market and being distributed around the world. Can you give us just a quick rundown of what's currently being distributed around the Middle East specifically? Right. So, um, so there are the, the first one that was released in the Middle East uh, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, UAE, was the Sinopharm vaccine. Uh, which is the Chinese vaccine. It's an inactivated virus vaccine, and it's typically administered uh, in two doses with three weeks in between. And uh, this vaccine, uh, supposedly, depending on the clinical trials, is projecting that it has a quite a high efficacy, but we still don't know the accurate numbers, whether it's 70% or 80% or more. The ones that um, uh, were uh, used in other places uh, are the mRNA vaccine, the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So the messenger RNA vaccine uh, is a new technology. You have the messenger RNA with nanoparticle, and this is a whole new technology for vaccines. Uh, it is supposed to give prevention in 95%. Uh, uh, of the people who receive it. And it is also administered in two doses, three weeks apart. The other uh, mRNA vaccine that's also available now on the market, uh, mostly in the US, is the Moderna vaccine. This is also uh, uh, a vaccine that promises to have a high efficacy, 94% in preventing symptomatic infection. And the uh, time between the two doses is 28 days. Uh, the other vaccine that seemed to be quite promising, and uh, I think uh, today we heard that uh, Janssen, part of Johnson & Johnson, uh, will be filing to have uh, approval for the FDA uh, uh, for vaccine. And the uh, good advantage of this vaccine is that it's in a single dose and it's cheaper than the others. 
And unlike the mRNA vaccines, that does not require the special refrigeration because the Pfizer vaccine has to be at a minus 70 degrees uh, to keep the nanoparticle and the mRNA stable. Uh, whereas the Janssen and Janssen vaccines, uh, you know, are made through the traditional ways and it's a single dose and don't require any particular uh, conditions to preserve. The other uh, promising vaccine is the AstraZeneca or uh, the other, uh, you know, name for it is the University of Oxford because this is where the research uh, was done. It's an adenovirus-based uh, vaccine. And uh, the numbers we've heard in terms of uh, efficacy in preventing disease uh, is 70% in preventing severe disease and hospitalization. It's also a two-dose vaccine, and they need to be taken four weeks apart. Now, uh, last week as well, there was a, a, a study published in one of the very prestigious journals, The Lancet, on the Russian vaccine. This is the Sputnik vaccine. Uh, it's also a recombinant adenovirus-based uh, vaccine. And the studies indicate that the prevention uh, of symptomatic disease was 91% and 100% prevention of severe disease. It's also a vaccine that requires two doses uh, to be taken uh, three weeks apart. Uh, and then the last one, uh, the, the one that uh, we've heard about also is Novavax vaccine, which is a protein subunit vaccine. And I believe it's available in some of the Arab countries, but I'm not sure which ones yet. Uh, also, it promises to have an efficacy of 95% against the original novel uh, coronavirus and uh, perhaps 85% uh, efficacy against the UK variant, uh, the one we've heard about the B117 uh, uh, novel uh, variant. Yeah, so what about this new variant and these other vaccines? Are there concerns that they're not as effective against this variant? It must be difficult to measure the efficacy. Yeah, so there are concerns about the UK variant, but there are even more concerns about the South African uh, and the Brazilian variants. And I think it's a bit too early to say which vaccine uh, will have more efficacy against those uh new variants, the South African and Brazil in particular, because they were only described recently and we need more time to learn about efficacy against the new variants. I know uh, that there are uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies who have already started to speak about uh, work on a polyvalent vaccine so that it will be efficacious against all the circulating uh, variants. I think we'll need more time to learn what's true about this. So are there shortages of any of these? And are, is there more of a supply, for example, of the Chinese vaccine? You hear people talking about, well, you know, if these other ones aren't, we'll take this less effective uh, Chinese vaccine. And are there any fake vaccines yeah. going around? Uh, let me ask, answer the uh, second question first. So I've not heard about fake vaccines yet. I won't be surprised since there are fake medications everywhere. Uh, but uh, at least we have not heard anything publicly yet. 
In terms of shortages, yes, obviously, if if the plan is to vaccinate the whole universe, you can imagine that the number uh, of vaccines uh, needed is humongous. And despite the fact that a lot of pharmaceutical companies have uh, really directed their efforts to vaccines and stopped manufacturing some other medications uh, uh, recently so that all the uh, manpower and machine power will be directed towards the vaccine, the, the required number is humongous. So um, obviously the, there will be a shortage, but the fact that it's we're not, the whole universe is not depending on a single vaccine or a single company to make that vaccine makes it a lot easier. And, and that's why I think the advice we've been telling people is the first vaccine you can get your hands on, go ahead and take it, even if the efficacy is not 100%. Actually, in medicine, there's nothing that's 100%. Non, none of the vaccines that we've used historically in the past had been 100%. So the vaccines can prevent a certain percentages of infections. So with all the vaccines that I mentioned, all of them uh, seem to give uh, results at least 70% or more. And so therefore we're telling people, you know, the first vaccine you can have your hands on, go ahead and take it. Now, obviously, the ones that uh, require two doses become a little more difficult to take. But as I mentioned, the only one that seems to require a single dose right now is the Janssen by Johnson & Johnson. And we're waiting to see if FDA is going to approve that based on the uh, studies uh, provided to FDA, which we've not seen yet. All we've seen is press release saying that uh, this is a great vaccine, a single dose, cheaper than the others, uh, and very uh, efficacious. So we need to see the data to judge. I think what people yeah. are most concerned about, though, is the unknown long-term side effects. Do you think yeah. that there could be long-term side effects based on your experience studying other vaccines, learning about the components of these vaccines? So uh, let me first mention that um, I think for people listening, you know, the, the common side effects that we see with the vaccines in general uh, are typically uh, very mild uh, and they are like any other vaccines. You know, they can be pain and redness at the site of injection, uh, little fever, a little fatigue, muscle pain, headaches, some chilliness, some joint pain. Uh, some people have experienced uh, just feeling unwell for a few days, uh, some nausea, uh, and uh, uh, some people uh, have swollen lymph nodes. Now, in my mind, when you get some side effects to the vaccine, it's a good sign because it means the vaccine is working and it's stimulating your immune system to form antibodies. If you get a vaccine and you have absolutely nothing, to me, it means your immune system is a bit lazy and not, not reacting to what you want it to do. Now, obviously, with the mRNA vaccine, uh, we've heard that uh, people have had some severe allergic reaction. Um, and then, therefore, if you are getting the mRNA vaccine and you've had history 
of major allergic reactions in the past to certain drugs, you know, any medications, antibiotics, or, uh, uh, you know, other vaccines. Um, these patients, if they have the choice between the mRNA vaccine and another one, then maybe it's more prudent to go to the other types of vaccine because there has uh, been uh, reports of severe allergic reaction. Uh, for any vaccine, I usually recommend uh, for people to be monitored for 15 minutes to make sure that they don't develop a severe allergic reaction that would require intervention. And uh, now if the patient has a history of severe allergic reaction to something else, then maybe this monitoring needs to be a bit longer for 30 minutes. The long-term side effects of any of the COVID vaccines, I think is unknown. I think if someone uh, uh, stands up and starts speaking of the long-term safety of the COVID vaccine, I don't think that's honest. This is a vaccine that we've had for less than a year. So how can you speak scientifically about long-term side effect of something that you've only had for one year? So I think it's very premature to speak about long-term side effects based on what we're hearing and the technology and uh, you know, with the virologists and the scientists who worked on these vaccines, they're saying these seem to be safe with no long-term sequelae. My personal opinion is to say, we don't know yet, but um, from our experience with other vaccines, I'm not aware of any other vaccines that caused significant long-term sequelae uh, that were of concerns. Now, there's a lot of talk about uh, the potential risk of infertility with the mRNA vaccines. I'd say we don't know. We really don't know. We don't know if COVID can uh, cause some uh, degree of less fertility in the immediate post-infection uh, course. We don't know. I think the best way to answer this is to say we don't know yet. Yeah, I remember reading about uh, possible effects on men's fertility with COVID, with the virus. Um, so it would be interesting to see. And when you say about the vaccine, would that be for both men and women, for just men or women? I really would say um, we don't know. We don't know. The, the scientists are telling us, no, it doesn't happen because the molecular mimicry between the proteins on the sperm and the eggs and the mRNA triggered protein seem to be a far-fetched possibility, but we really don't know. Okay, <laughs> so we're all kind of gambling with with the vaccine, with the virus. Nobody really knows. Um, it's it's uh, that's why people I think are so worried right now because there are yes. so many unknowns. Yeah, but yeah. but I would say we are in a state of pandemic. Uh, we cannot wait to have a herd immunity to get out of this pandemic. The only way we're going to get to herd immunity is with the vaccine. If we wait until 70, 80% of the population is infected, we're going to be losing a lot of lives. And Although at the beginning of the pandemic, we were saying that only older people and people with cancer and other major medical problems uh, are dying and the mortality is less than 1% in total. But as we 
are seeing more and more patients, we're learning that the mortality in the older age group is, you know, uh, 12 to 15 percent. But also we're seeing mortality in uh, patients who are not old, who are not uh, cancer patients, who don't have what we call comorbid conditions. Uh, so, you know, we're being traumatized with with losing young patients uh, who were previously very, very healthy uh, to COVID infection. And so I think if we keep that in mind, uh, we uh, come to the conclusion that uh, herd immunity, which will take a long time to occur, is not the answer if we want to wait for the natural infection to allow to reach herd immunity. I think, therefore, the vaccine becomes the natural choice. So at what point do you think we'll see a turning point when the risk of exposure will be exponentially reduced, both by herd immunity and, you know, high rates of vaccination? When can we stop worrying about this so much? Because at the end of the day, uh, the whole world is connected. So all the different regions are having kind of a different timeline. We know Israel is kind of ahead of the curve. The UAE in, in the Middle East is in second place with the most vaccinations. Yeah. Lebanon is getting it now. But a lot of the poorer countries will probably be the last to get um, the vaccines. At what point do you foresee that we can put this behind us and live normally again? Yeah, I think you pointed out you know, very correctly to where the problem lies is the fact that we're very connected. And also, as you mentioned, even within the Arab countries, we have so much discrepancy between the policies on vaccination and availability from one country to the other. So, for example, um, you know, I, I can't imagine that we're going to have a vaccination available to uh, Yemeni citizens very soon, nor to Syrian citizens very soon, uh, because of the you know financial and political difficulties we're all aware of. Whereas UAE is not only offering vaccination to their citizens, but also to people who have uh, uh, you know uh, who 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 work there from other nationalities. So. I think, you know, you pointed out to our neighbor to the south, and today they reported that they've already seen 30% drop in their uh, number of new infections per day, and I think 35% less uh, case fatality rate already, because they were very aggressive with the vaccination. So I think um, it's gonna, it's hard to predict, but what's good now is that there's a lot going on to try to provide poor countries with the vaccine because, you know, as you mentioned, uh, in order to control the pandemic globally, we need to uh, think of all the countries and, and not just the countries that can afford to pay for the vaccine. I, I think it's hard to predict when this will end, but somehow, if all things go right, I feel by the summer we're going to be okay. This is just a prediction and not based on any accurate mathematical model, but just from talking to colleagues at WHO and you know other experts in the field from Europe and the US, they seem to think that by the summer we're going to have things under control. Well, that would be... Fantastic. And I think everyone is just looking forward to that light at the end of the tunnel. Um, 
But obviously, the vaccine is the ultimate solution to the problem, but it seems like it'll be a while before everyone gets it. In the meantime, um, many doctor, doctors around the world are talking about prevention. For example, one doctor in California, Dr. Mark Gordon, his name is, he's an expert in the field of neuroregenerative neuro medicine. He recommends supplements and dosing uh, to, to kind of bulletproof yourself against COVID if you haven't had the vaccines. And he suggests supplements including zinc, quercetin, vitamin D, and DHEA, all in very specific doses. And he's done yeah. you know, studies on this. And he talks about also turmeric because it's an antioxidant. And he explains how it protects the cells against the viral infection in a very specific manner. Does this make sense to you? And is this something that you guys talk about in the scientific community, in the academic scientific community who are studying the vaccines and the disease? Um, so, uh, well, first, the field of neurodegenerative disease is a well-known field, and it studies the diseases that affect the brain and leads to uh, early dementia, basically. So it's a, it's a field from neuroscience, and it's a well-recognized field. I'm not familiar with Dr. Gordon. Uh, let me tell you how we feel about these things. Well, first, the best way to prevent the virus is to wear a mask. Because now, again and again, all the studies are showing that you acquire the virus by inhaling the virus. It goes through the nostrils, goes down to the lungs, and therefore, you know, all that was said about the surfaces and cleaning the surfaces, etc., maybe it's not a bad idea to, to practice clean hands and clean surfaces all the time, but the most important is not to inhale the virus. So I think the best way to prevent remains to wear a mask. And even for people who have taken the vaccine, they should continue to wear a mask because as I gave you the numbers, none of the vaccines is 100% efficacious. So therefore, mask, 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 until the pandemic is over. Uh, uh, that's the first thing. Now, the second is um, uh, all the supplements that people are talking about, the vitamin C, the vitamin D, the zinc, the melatonin. Uh, you know, what we tell people is that, uh, you know, try them. They don't hurt. Uh, they might help. The scientific evidence behind them is not very rigorous. For example, there are studies that have shown that low vitamin D correlates with higher uh, uh, mortality or uh, you know, higher acuity of the infection and more complications. But there are no studies that show that if you take vitamin D, uh, you improve the outcome of the patient. So people are inferring from you know, some studies to say more than what the study says. But my, my motto has been since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and you can imagine how many calls we get on this, is that, you know, if things don't harm and might help boosting your immune system, making you feel better, or even a placebo effect, go ahead and take them. Uh, I wouldn't go to what some people are doing, taking mega doses of these vitamins and zinc, and because this can have side effects. 
but you know, a single vitamin C per day, vitamin D, uh, you know, two three times per day per week. Uh, you know, zinc 25 milligrams per day is fine. Turmeric is a very well-known anti-inflammatory powder. And if you use it with black pepper, it does reduce the inflammation. Yes, and I tell this to my patients with autoimmune diseases, add turmeric to your food. But does this prevent COVID infection? Uh, I don't know. We the Studies have not been done in a rigorous way to answer the question. Just, I have a question about that. Do you think it's possible that that prevention is underrated in the research community and that they don't put as as many resources towards studying the potential benefits of specific doses of these supplements? Because if you found that it worked, then you wouldn't have a reason to produce a vaccine that makes millions and millions of dollars for these companies who are sponsoring these research uh, studies is it is yeah. this possible and uh, what what are you thinking? well i mean yeah obviously we live in a world where you know money and profit is the name of the game so obviously that is in the equation when people think about designing new drugs or new vaccines i think uh, the answer to your question is physicians who are interested in what we call alternative medicines or a natural way of healing, uh, they can come up with rigorous research. It has to be, you know, randomized control clinical trials that look at two groups of people, control for all the variables, give one group the, the, the you know, the vitamin or whichever, um, you know, type of, uh, uh, you know, powder or curcumin or whatever you want to study and do it in a controlled manner. You, you you give a group that product, you give the other group a placebo and test it. I think there are other examples in medicine where people have looked at, uh, you know, studies for other conditions. Once it's it's done in a, uh, you know, randomized, controlled manner, uh, then even physicians and scientists pay attention to these studies. And I'm not saying that... Uh, uh, we're not interested to look at such results. But what I'm saying is the studies have not been done in a rigorous way to answer the questions yet. The, you're going to see a lot coming out on ivermectin as prevention uh, because you probably have heard that this is a drug that is uh, typically used to treat a parasitic infection. And uh, a lot of uh, investigators have been interested to look at it for treatment. And uh, I, I think soon we will see a meta-analysis published uh, on all the studies that have looked at whether ivermectin is efficacious or not in reducing the severity of uh, COVID-19 infections. But there are studies that have looked at it as prevention. And I'm getting calls all the time now. Should we take prevention uh, ivermectin every two weeks, you know, uh, a, a single dose. Uh, and my answer is, let me wait until I see the published studies, which are not out yet. Uh, once we look at the studies, if they are conducted in a rigorous way and the results are convincing, then why not? This is a cheap drug. Maybe uh, it's very efficacious. We need to look at the studies and judge. That's interesting because wasn't one of the first 
supposed like cures, also an anti-parasitic drug that people were using to to reduce the symptoms. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the anti-parasitic drug. Ah, it's the same one. Interesting. It's the same one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think there's a sense of suspicion uh, in the world that this virus may have been intentionally created to disrupt the status quo. So it's kind of a conspiracy theory, but a lot of people think it's possible. Don't put anything, you know, uh, uh, above. It's possible um, to control or to control overpopulation. Some people are saying that this was released into the world for that purpose. Um, but there's also been talk about microchips being in the vaccine. Is that technically possible? Uh, I, I really, I, I wouldn't know what to how to answer this. Um, uh, there's a lot of such, you know, a lot of circulating news about such things and conspiracy theories. Uh, I'm not a person who usually dismisses uh, such things uh, without looking at the evidence. I think at this point, uh, WHO is investigating the origin of the virus and they send a whole team to China to try to understand how it started, how it spread that quickly. You know, it spread very quickly globally. Uh, and, um, you know, there are a lot of unanswered questions with this virus. Um, I prefer to say we're, we're waiting. We're waiting to get the full story. Obviously, there are unanswered questions. And this is a virus that's teaching us a new lesson every day. Um, some things that we predict today uh, are not happening tomorrow. And... Uh, you know, the, the rapidity with which the new variants are developing in various places, uh, etc. You know, a lot of unanswered questions. We're all eager, uh, you know, to uh, really uh, wait for all this to be answered. I think that would be the most uh, appropriate way to answer that question. Yeah. Um, is it technically possible, though, to put microchips in a in a vaccine? You think? Well, it, it's not a it's not microchips. I think they're worried that the nanoparticles, um, you know, can be the uh, chips that therefore can um, allow people to follow where you are moving, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an engineer, <laughs> and I'm. Uh, it's hard to imagine that that will be the case. Um, I don't know. I, I would say it's. It, I'm not convinced that that's 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 the case right now. But uh, uh, you know, I think we need time to unravel a lot of these uncertainties. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll find out soon if people are being tracked. Um, hopefully. Or probably not. Um, but Denmark has announced that its citizens will now have a vaccine passport. And Sweden is following suit. This is happening as we speak. Um, and some countries like Greece are saying if if that's the case, they'll forego a quarantine time for people coming in who've had the vaccine and who can show it with these kinds of passports. As a specialist in infectious diseases, do you think that airlines should require these passports and proof that they've been vaccinated? Is, should this be a new criteria for being allowed to travel? 
as a as a doctor yeah well first of all i'm all against forcing a vaccine on someone who is not convinced to have a vaccine i think i've i've told people the vaccine should be a personal choice you can go to your doctor they can tell you what are the benefits of the vaccine uh, at the end of the day it's a personal choice and this is not the vaccine where this is not the first vaccine that people might refuse to take. There are many other vaccines that people have just not taken. In a recent survey in the US, uh, yesterday there was news released that uh, 24% of a large number surveyed, they said they're still not uh, ready to take the vaccine. So vaccination is a personal choice. I think one should educate the people about the benefits recommended but if at the end of the day they say i don't want to take it i don't think we should force a vaccine on anyone and from that perspective i don't i don't think airlines should uh, uh, require to have a certificate for a vaccine besides if someone has immunity to the virus and they decide it's they don't want to take the vaccine right now because they've developed immunity to the virus. Uh, you know, you, you can't force them to take a vaccine because historically there are no vaccines that have created more immunity than the virus itself for other diseases. So I think they're taking it too far by uh, obliging people to do it. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Switzerland has decided to not even talk about vaccine for two months until they see what happens in the rest of the world with the vaccine. So I think these are individual decisions by countries taken at the national level based on maybe advisors, uh, you know, to the ministers uh, of health in those countries, etc., I, I don't like extremes in life nor in medicine. I think we should encourage people, recommend it, uh, you know, talk about the benefits, uh, the personal benefits as well as the benefits to society. But I wouldn't go all the way to uh, force people to do it if they don't want to. That makes sense because at the end of the day, it's a personal choice to get on a plane, to travel. And so to force people to to have to have a vaccine is, is doesn't seem um, it seems like a violation of, of personal choice. Uh, so yeah, that makes yes, sense. And, absolutely. and if, you, if you're going to fly, yeah. you're taking a risk anyways for uh, any for yeah. many other things. So that's a it's yeah. it's a good point, Dr. Kanj. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know it's an extremely busy time for you. Um, is it is it the most intense in your entire career? Uh, yes, I think it's the most intense, and I was waiting uh, until my kids grow up and I'm, until I, uh, you know, become a full professor to start, you know, slowing down. I became tenured professor three years ago, and I thought it's now about the right time to start slowing down and, uh, you know, concentrate more on mentoring young people and working less. Uh, clinically and less legwork, and then the pandemic started. So I would say, you know, I was I was talking yesterday to my husband and my daughter, telling them I feel like I'm working as much as three doctors at the same time. So it's it's been really intense, nonstop for a full year. 
but at the same time, you know, these are the most challenging times. And, uh, you know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, you know, we were lucky to experience uh, the challenges uh, that face humanity and feel that uh, we're in the medical profession, which, uh, you know, uh, you know, is uh, at this point the most valuable to help humanity, I think. So, uh, now I think, yes, very challenging times, working very hard, but we're blessed that uh, we're in a profession that uh, uh, every night we say we're able to help people. Well, we're so grateful for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for explaining everything in such an eloquent manner today. Thank you, Nadia. And thank you for having me. That's all for today. I know it was a lot of information. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast today, be sure to subscribe to the show. And we'd love to have your comments. Stay healthy and take care.